I do not believe you can overstate the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. However, there has been a movement in the church in the past few years of hyper-grace churches. If you've heard the term hyper-grace, it's really just kind of a reforming of, I mentioned Bonhoeffer on Sunday, of what he called cheap grace, hyper-grace. And if you've heard about this, or even if you haven't, and you want to know, well, how how do I know if a church is a hyper-grace church, and and what does that mean? Well, this might help you a little bit. In an article written back in June of 2013, charismanews.com, Joseph Matera, gave eight signs of hyper-grace churches. Eight signs. Here we go. Number one, preachers of hyper-grace churches never speak against sin. Secondly, the lead pastor never takes a stand for cultural righteousness. Third, the Old Testament is almost completely ignored in a hyper-grace church. Number four, people living overtly immoral lives are allowed to teach and or lead ministries. Number five, the lead pastor speaks often against the institutional church. I read that and I thought, well, I've done that a little bit. Only in as much as we ourselves as a church fellowship and a part of the larger institutional church would learn, right? And simply be the church that Jesus has called us to be by His Word. But number six, the lead pastor preaches against tithing. So right there, you know, this is not a hyper-grace church. (laughs) Number seven, the lead pastor only preaches positive, motivational messages. Number eight, key members of the church are regularly living sinful lives with impunity, with license. I would add number nine, hyper-grace churches call their senior pastor the lead pastor. I don't know, maybe that's just one. In other words, the bottom line is this, you're fine as you are. Billy Joel was right theologically, just the way you are. You're fine, no change is necessary. You know, come to Jesus, join up with us, no sanctification, no pursuit of holiness, no attempting to follow after Jesus, no taking up your cross and following Him. No, it's just hyper-grace. And if you heard that on Sunday, you weren't listening. You like how I just threw that back on you? You do bear some responsibility in this teaching-student relationship. It is absolutely true, and I said this on Sunday, there is nothing I can add to grace. And remember that quote, a Christ supplemented is a Christ supplanted. You can't add to it. You can't make it better than it is. John wrote in John 1.17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So you can't add to it. And yes... I absolutely believe, and I know this is hard to hear. In fact, I want you to know, as I left on Sunday, I thought about this some more, and I thought about some who might hear it and and, and struggle with this as a statement. But I do believe that grace is entirely powerful to change a life. To take certain desires of certain sins out of our lives completely. I believe that that hope is part of grace. Like I said Sunday, man, I can sin anytime I want to. I just don't want to. Oh, so you're claiming to be perfect, correct? I didn't say that. But what I'm saying is that the sanctification of the grace of God, the more I understand grace, the more I walk with Jesus, the more I seek after His Spirit, the more those want-tos of sins become less and less and less until they dissipate. And yes, there is the potential of Satan sneaking back around 40 years later and and popping out an old sin and catching you off guard, of course, because, as I said a couple of weeks ago, I'm born again, still in skin. So yes, I am capable of sin, even big sin. But grace, God's grace, has the power to override and overpower any of my want-tos. So that I want to follow Him. As Paul said, and this was radical for him to say this. 1 Corinthians 6.12 All things are lawful for me. And he makes no exception 
In other words, I can do whatever I want. But then he says, but not all things are beneficial. Actually, in 1 Corinthians 6.12, he says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything but grace. May we be a people who seek to be mastered by the grace of God. That is not hyper-grace, because that understanding of grace calls for, desires, and pursues sanctification, righteousness, holiness. And you might hear that and say, okay, but what if I still want to? What if I'm still drawn to a certain type of sin or a specific sin? And again, I never said sin just goes away or the lure completely disappears. Sin is powerful. What I was getting at Sunday and what we will continue to preach is that grace is more powerful. That the grace of God in Jesus Christ is more powerful than our sin, than our desires, than our human fleshly want juice. The question is, do you want grace? And if so, man, chase it down. Pursue it with all your heart. Go after Jesus with your life and watch Him change you. I think the problem comes... Honestly, when we just don't avail ourselves of grace. We just set it aside because I'm too intent on winning the race myself. I've got to do this. I can do this. I'm sure I can do this. I can be better. I know I can be better. And it all sets grace aside for the work of the flesh. Well, Galatians 5 verse 1. Let's just start back and get a running start into this. It was for freedom... That Christ set us free. Remember that's a sentence that looks two ways. It was for freedom. That is freedom out ahead. That Christ set us free. That is from what's behind. It goes both ways. Therefore keep standing firm. And do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold I Paul say to you. That if you receive circumcision. Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. You've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. And as we talked about Sunday, that is faith energizes love. The word working through. Faith energizes love by God's grace. It is faith in His grace that causes love to be ignited in me and to be superpowered, if you will. I can love because I have faith in His grace. And man, that gets the love churning. Well now, Paul turns his gaze directly and practically to the fledgling Galatian churches. And in verse 7 he writes, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were running so well. Paul loves the Olympic metaphor. The metaphor of the runner. He uses it several times. 1 Corinthians 9.24 Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Don't run like a loser. Run as a winner. Hebrews 12 verse 1 Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. By the way, I've been dying to tell you all this and I'm not going to wait until we get to Hebrews though that will be sooner as opposed to later. But... I have often said, I believe Paul is the author of Hebrews. Many times Bible teachers will say, the Hebrew writer or the Hebrew author, and they will not name the Hebrew author as Paul because, well, the jury's out. I think it was Paul. Because, for one thing, conceptually it is so like Paul. But one of the things that goes against it, and this, by the way, is just a bonus for being here tonight. One of the things that goes against the Pauline authorship of Hebrews is people say, well, the language is different. It's much more linguistically correct than any of Paul's other letters. Here's what I think. And we'll talk about this when we get to Hebrews. But I believe that Paul himself wrote Hebrews in Hebrew, which is why it reads so different than the rest of the letters that are all written in Greek. 
We'll talk about that when we get there. But, again, Hebrews uses that same metaphor, very famous with Paul, and there are several concepts throughout that book, famous with Paul, let's run with endurance the race set before us. It's Paul who said in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. And in the future there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to also to all who have loved His appearing. So run. Run the race. But here in verse 7... He says you were running well. Who hindered you? And he implicates those legalistic agitators that he's been kind of mentioning throughout the letter. Those who are coming in and trying to mess everything up, trying to cut in on the run for their own win. And that word hindered, it even has to do with breaking up the ground so that it's hard to run on. That's kind of the concept behind the word. It's actually a military word for you naval personnel. It's a word that means going in and and destroying a road so that you cannot traverse the road in warfare. Who hindered you? Who broke it? You were running great, and then all of a sudden the ground just gets all thrashed in front of you. Who did this? You were running well. Now, I've told this story before. You may have heard it, and if you did, just you can check out for a couple minutes, and then I'll invite you back when I'm done telling it. But it just fits so well here. And I like telling it because it's out of my own glory days. I was a high school sophomore. Running track, I was fast, man. At least I thought I was. And I was running the 400 meters, which back in those days was the 440-yard run because we didn't understand meters. One full out-and-out sprint around the track. It wasn't those wimpy little hundred-yard dashes, you know. Those guys, man, give them a cup of coffee and let them go, and they're done, right? No, for, for the Ironman, it's called the Ironman race. You are sprinting full speed out of the blocks, one full entire lap, and it's a killer run. There's no pacing yourself. You run as hard as you can, flat out, until you break the tape or fall over the finish line, whatever comes first. Now, I was in the lead in this particular race, running against my nemesis, a junior from Dana Point High School. The guy was fast and ugly. (laughs) I'm kidding. He was fast. And as we came around the last turn, I was on the very inner lane, which is always reserved for whoever's in first. He was coming around behind me, came up on in the second lane, and cut me off. But when he cut me off, his spikes in his left shoe gouged a hole in my right leg. He spiked me. You can't do that. That's considered illegal. <laughs> spiked me bad, and I stutter-stepped and then kept going, and flecks of blood now are spattering the track as I come around and, and into the backstretch, and I'm right behind him, and I just can't quite... I'm like a tenth of a second behind him. He breaks the tape, and I'm right there. I will never forget... I won that race, by the way. I'll tell you how. I'll never forget this. Looking over, and here comes Coach Fred Almond. Fred Almond was about 4'2", and an absolute firebrand, and his face was beat red, and he is shouting and yelling as he's running across the, the middle of the field there. Comes running up, I saw what happened! Well, several people saw what happened. Saw me spike. The judges took one look at my leg, they took one look at the guy who spiked me, and they said, disqualified, you win. And I won the race. Thank you. (laughs) Here's the thing. Had I quit the race, rolled over in the midfield grass, and just bled all over the place, the winner of the race would have been the third place runner. If I had just given up... And, and, and stepped out. Now, this is not kudos to me because I didn't know any better. I, 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 you know, you're just your full adrenaline, and so I'm just staying on the track. But it's staying in the race. Run in such a way that you may win. And there's a right way to run the race and a right way to win. And Paul says, you were running well. Who spiked you? Who got in the way? Who hindered you? What's happening here? But note this. Note what he says. And we are talking about grace in this race. And he says, you are running well. Who hindered you from what? From obeying. Well, how does that work? Shouldn't he have just said, who hindered you from the grace of God that allowed you to roll into the midfield track and just lie there and still win? Who hindered you from grace? No. Who hindered you from obeying 
the truth. So let me make this really clear. For anyone who would espouse hyper-grace theology, obedience is required. Grace causes obedience to emerge in our lives. Not because I think I can save myself, but as I've said so many times over the years, because I'm saved. I know I'm saved, therefore obedience flows. I want to obey the Lord, because He already saved me. Before I asked for it, before I deserved it. And as a saved person, obedience is required. It's a very interesting word when applied to grace. Let me ask you, are you obedient to His grace? Is it your legs or is it His grace that ultimately will carry you across the finish line? See, I understand fully that it is His grace. It is the power of grace. And that means the power to battle, to fight back against those deeds of the flesh, which we'll get into, long about verse 19. It's fought, it's run by faith in Him, faith in God's grace which yields obedience in our lives. What does that look like? Well, it starts by just the fact that we call on Him. That's obedience. We invite His Spirit into the race. That's obedience. We trust in Him rather than ourselves. That's obedience. We stand behind Him because we know we lose the race otherwise. We also stand behind Him because we know He's already won. It's obedience. And so in verse 8, Paul goes on, he says, This persuasion, that is this hindrance to grace, this persuasion did not come from Him who calls you. This legalistic persuasion, this religious attitude. And I think it's interesting, Paul doesn't say, this persuasion did not come from me. I didn't teach you this, where did you get this? Paul didn't say that. He says, this persuasion didn't come from Him who called you, that is, Jesus Because it's Jesus who calls us to grace. It is Jesus who exemplified grace in His life. Which makes it really interesting to me that if you read through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will never hear Jesus use the word grace, charis in the Greek, once. He never uses it. For such a big concept, wouldn't you think? Just one time. Jesus, say the word, man. He didn't have to say the word. He is the word. He lived the word. He exemplified the word. John says in John 1.14, we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace. You could look at Jesus and see grace. You could listen to Jesus and hear grace. You could watch Jesus do miracles and just say, wow, that's the grace of God. So he never had to speak the word. He lived the word. And he did say things like this. John six twenty nine. This is the work of God. That you believe in Him whom He has sent. That's grace. The work of God is grace. Just believe. Well, verse 9. Paul continues saying, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just put a little leaven and you know what's going to happen. It's going to cause the bread to rise. It's going to get all mixed in throughout the dough. That's how it works. And Paul's concern here, and I think it's important for us to recognize, is not just personal. He's, just not, he's not just talking to the individual Galatian person who's struggling with this. Paul's concern is corporate. He truly has a... a Godly, divine worry, if you will, for the infiltration of legalism into the churches of Galatia. Moving like leaven through the church, and it can do that. Legalism can destroy a church fellowship, turning it hard and rules-oriented and compassionless. Jesus was concerned about the same thing. He said in Matthew 16.11, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What leaven was that? Legalism. Beware of legalism because it starts to affect and infect other people. One man's legalism can destroy a church fellowship. 
And in verse 10, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. And you know what's worse than being legalistic? Teaching legalism. The one who says, no, no, you need to do it this way. And by the way, you need to add this into your faith in Jesus. And as I said, while I reject the notion of hyper-grace and universal salvation, I would still rather err on the side of grace if I'm going to make an error. I would still be rather be seen by the Lord as, as being too gracious as opposed to being too righteous. I would rather be the church of Philadelphia than the church at Ephesus. You know? Rather give more grace. Still better is just to listen to the whole counsel of the Word of God. The balance of grace and righteousness. You know, I was thinking about this kind of off and on throughout today, how the first Star Wars novel, I read that when I was a kid, right when Star Wars came out. Even before I saw the movie, I picked up the book and and I thought it was so cool. But the way it was written was in these little chunks. You know, you'd, you'd get a chunk... And then all of a sudden you'd be somewhere else and you'd get a chunk. And then you'd be somewhere else and you'd get a chunk. And they have to write that way because it's all happening at one time. Okay, so it's simultaneous. But you can't read two simultaneous events at the same... We don't have the capacity to read one word right on top of another. And that's grace and truth. Sometimes we have to talk about just grace. Focus only on grace to fully get the concept of grace. But that doesn't deny that there's also truth and obedience and righteousness. These go hand in hand. They're happening simultaneously. My salvation is through grace. But faith, James was right, faith without works is dead. Well, how does that work? Well, it's working at the same time as grace. And so here Paul is talking about these people who have come in and disturbing, and and that they are going to bear judgment. This is serious business. And in verse 11 he says, But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. Now, this is one of Paul's stranger statements. In fact, when you hit it, you kind of... I mean, unless you do what sometimes we do, unless you just kind of keep reading, because you figure as long as you're reading Scripture, you're okay. Pause and understand that on this verse, apparently what's happened and what Paul is addressing is these legalistic agitators are claiming that Paul himself taught circumcision. He did it. You know, I know he's told you all about grace, and that's fine, you can have your grace, but Paul, Paul got Timothy circumcised, Acts chapter 16, verse 3. And he did. Of course, if you go back and read Acts chapter 16, verse 3, you find out that it wasn't to make Timothy righteous or saved. It was so Timothy could more effectively minister to unsaved Jews. That's Paul's whole mentality of, yeah, I'll become all things to all people so I may win some to Jesus. And so, yes, Timothy got circumcised. Why? So Timothy could be an evangelist to Jewish people and be readily accepted as he taught. But that doesn't mean, and Paul is saying, look, I don't preach circumcision. And then he gives this proof. If I preach circumcision, well then, why am I persecuted? Why when I go into these Jewish towns and villages, are they chasing me out of every town? If I'm preaching circumcision, why aren't they okay with me? Where's the persecution? And then he tells us what it is, the stumbling block of the cross. If I'm preaching circumcision, then I am abolishing the cross. That whole message is gone. But I'm not. Paul points out being persecuted for the cross, for preaching the cross as his pastoral integrity. Why was the cross a stumbling block? Because, and get this, the cross of Jesus Christ decimates religion absolutely flattens it, wipes it out. It proves that salvation, once and for all, the cross proves salvation is not up to you. That there's only one way to be saved, and it is through the cross of Jesus. But people like the control of religion. You know? We like to be able to say, no, I I, I had something to do with it. You know what you had to do with your salvation? You showed up. You happened to be there that day. You weren't absent. That's it. You said, yes, Lord. 
You came to the cross of Christ. So why do we ever have a problem with legalism at all? Because we like to control. We like the sense of self-righteousness. You know, I've done something to make myself what I am. We also like the sense of control over other people. And that's where righteousness starts to play in. I can look around and go, you know, Brian Tyhouse, mostly a really good guy. Don't turn around and look at him, but he's right back there. I can see him. Mostly a really good guy. I mean, he's not quite up to my righteous standards, but we're getting him there. You know, we're working on him. We've met a couple of times, and I think through enough prayer and study, ultimately, he may yet be quite a Christian. Now, that's ridiculous, but churches play at that, don't they? You are not quite good enough to be in this position. Check back with us in a year. You know, as opposed to saying that we are all by the cross, saved, we are all sanctified, we are all cleansed by what Jesus did and it has nothing to do with what we do. The cross takes away my self-righteousness and the cross takes away my control over other people. Because Brian can look me in the face and go, guess what, Rick? I'm every bit as saved as you are. Maybe more so. (laughs) No, it has nothing to do with us. It is the cross of Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians one twenty three, we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, <laughs> foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And believe you me, that power and wisdom can wipe out those sins that we struggle with by grace. Well, verse 12. I wish, he says, that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Now we talked about that briefly on Sunday, and we're just going to talk about it briefly one more time tonight, and and then we'll just move on. But it is one of the most shocking statements Paul ever made. I wish you would just go, you want to teach circumcision? Why stop there? Why not just finish the job? Why not keep going? We learned about this actually in our country back in June 23rd of 1993 when John and Lorena Bobbitt made the headlines. (laughs) Any of you remember this lovely couple? He abused her so she cut him off. Literally. With a kitchen knife. Yeah. The lurid details caught the, the attention of the entire country. We were all like, no way that happened. She was exonerated, and uh, he went on to make porn films. Don't even ask. But he did. And then he became a minister at the Universal Life Church in Las Vegas, so that's how that works. <laughs> Weird. There are too many puns, so I, I can't even go here. I, I can't. But Paul, what he is seriously and literally saying here is to preach circumcision is to sever someone from Christ, as he said up before. I wish you would just finish it up. Don't just circumcise. Be completely cut off. Sever yourself. And, by the way, this takes on even more severity because of a couple of reasons. Number one, there was a Greek goddess in Galatia where that was practiced. That is, genital mutilation was part of the idol worship. So the Galatians would have gone, Ooh, we know what he's talking about. And for the Jews who would read this, they knew exactly what Paul was saying about these religious agitators. I wish they would mutilate themselves. Listen, Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, No one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Now Paul goes here. Did he go too far? (laughs) Some critics think so. I actually read a couple of critics who who just said this was Paul taking it a step too far. They also miss how serious a problem this was. That if Paul had lost this battle, think about it, Gentile Christianity would have been over in a generation. We would not be here tonight. 
Christianity would have sunk backwards into a sect of Judaism and never would have recovered, never would have gotten out. It would have just been a legalistic arm of Jewish faith with Jesus added, and that's all. And Gentiles would have been cut off. So Paul is fighting this battle big time. And here's the thing, please note this, and you can use the word circumcision for religion here, but circumcision and the cross are mutually exclusive. You don't have both. And of course I'm speaking spiritually. You cannot rely on the two together. It's one or the other. You either rely on circumcision and religion and legalistic tendency, or you rely on the cross of Jesus Christ. But you cannot pull the two together. Faith in one denies the other. Faith in circumcision denies the cross. Faith in the cross absolutely denies circumcision. The question is, what saves you? You and your works? Then go circumcision. The cross of Jesus Christ, then go the cross. But Paul is making the very clear point, you cannot do both. For you were called to freedom, verse 13. Brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Rachel asked me just last week, satirically, she said, do you suppose this could be a prophecy for America? Listen, listen again with that in mind. For you were called to freedom. Brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Down in verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. And it seems in these days that the land of the free, home of the brave, has become more like the land of the lost and the home of the activist. And with the advent of social media, which on the one hand could be such a blessing, the vitriol and the hatred and the spewing anger and the biting and the devouring is constant. I have found myself on this downward trajectory of hating the news. And I used to be a real news buff. I, I, now, there's, you know what, the only reason I read the news now? It's because I have to preach and I want to have some sense of what's going on in the world, but I don't like it. I used to love it. Wake up every morning reading it, every evening, I'd watch all the shows, you know, track it. And now it's just fighting and hatred and all of this going on in this country. And man, this nation was called to freedom. That's how we started. But it seems like we're using freedom for the flesh. Is Paul describing America? Well, I think he is describing America. Is it prophetic of America? I don't think that was the intent. But we sure do see it these days, don't we? What this really is in verses 13 through 15 is a graphic description of division. And I want to point out how much God hates it. He just hates division. God who is love, as we sang. God who loves us beyond comprehension also hates. And what He hates more than anything else, the Bible tells us, is Division. Proverbs 6.16, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. And in Hebrew speak, that means number seven is the worst. Number seven is the pinnacle of all the things that God hates. And here's the list. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and number seven, one who spreads strife among brothers. Biting and devouring. And God hates it. I I can't underscore that any more heavily. And the thing is, using freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, selfishly using the grace that God has afforded us through Jesus Christ, selfishly using that freedom, here is where both the religionist and the Freedom From Religion Foundation They both don't have a clue. They both completely miss it. 
that the law of God truly is summed up in one word. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Leviticus Chapter 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love God, love people. And Jesus repeated it, you know. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39. On these two things, which is all about the love, hang the entire law and the prophets, Jesus said. It all comes down to love Love only. But listen, the opportunity for the flesh that Paul is talking about here isn't just personal carnality. That's how many people take it. It's not about hyper grace or cheap grace. Paul, he's talking about using law or using religion to lord it over others. And I want you to track with me. This is really important to get. It's what the agitators were doing to the Galatians. They they were using the law. It's like in in my joke a few minutes ago about me and Brian. Okay, It's, It's me using religion to push him down and elevate myself above him. And that's what religion does. And that's what the law does. And that's where Paul says, you are called to freedom. You are called to grace. Set free to be free. Right? Don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh. And there's only one way to counter that legalistic, prideful, self-over-others mentality, and it is through love, serve one another. Verse 13. Isn't it interesting? The more you serve someone, the more you tend to love them. It does something to your heart. When you you serve someone and you really put yourself into it and you really put themselves ahead of yourself and and as you serve, you just find yourself loving more. But this is, I think, one of the great paradoxes of Scripture, of Christian faith. You know, paradoxes like the least is the greatest among you and the, the, the last will be first. And here he's saying, you are free to serve. How do I not use my freedom as an opportunity for my flesh? I serve. I serve through love. Peter said the same thing in 1 Peter 2.16. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Isn't that marvelous? By grace I've been saved. I am completely free. I can do whatever I want to. And in grace I want to serve. I want to be a bond servant. Because that's the place where the follower of Jesus finds greatest joy. It's also the place where the follower of Jesus is the most like Him. See, He said in John 13, 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I gave you an example that you also should do as I did for you. Through love, verse 13, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. Let me say it again. Through love, serve one another. And if you haven't underlined that in your Bibles and circled it and highlighted it, please do so now. Through love, serve one another. But that phrase is even more profound than it appears to us in our English translations. Because what Paul actually wrote, Paul who had an absolute command of the Greek language, of the language that he used when he wrote these letters, inspired by the Holy Spirit, actually he uses the word agape, through agape, serve one another. But he goes a step further. He adds the definite article before agape. Meaning, what it really reads is not just through agape serve one another, it reads Tes agapes, serve one another. Meaning what? Through the love. Not just through love, generic love. It's through the love, serve one another. And guess what? We're right back to grace. We are right back to the fact that even me loving is an empowerment of the Spirit of God. 
It's a work of grace in me. Through the love, serve one another. And then in verse 16, he explains even more. But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now check this out. We've been talking about running a race. Paul said, you were running so well. What hindered you? Now all of a sudden, slow down there, Carl Lewis. We're not just talking about running a race. In fact, it's not speed that matters. The best way to run this race and win is to walk. And I'll put it to you this way. To run well, we must learn to walk led. That is led by the Spirit. Why? Because, verse 17, the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. And the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Please note this, that in every case here in verses 17 and 18, he's talking about the Spirit, not your Spirit. That's important. Because Protestantism and and Western Christianity has kind of done a poor job um, defining verses 17 and 18 in Galatians 5. People tend to just take this, they read over it, and they equate it to Romans 7, where Paul is talking about the civil war within. You know, there's a civil war. I'm fighting this battle. My spirit is fighting my flesh. I've got spirit on one side, flesh on the other, soul in the middle, and they fight in that battleground. And that's true. That happens. But that is not what Paul is describing here. He is talking about the flesh is set against the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ. And the spirit of Christ is set against the flesh. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and these are in opposition. God's spirit is opposed to the things of the flesh. And the things of the flesh are opposed to God's spirit. Why is that so important to understand? Because Paul is now circling back. Here coming toward the end of the letter, he's circling back to the necessity and the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit in the life of grace. And if you didn't hear that Sunday teaching, I would encourage you to. We spent some time talking about the Spirit and how He works grace in our lives. If you wonder, I got this sin problem. This is my big sin. And I've been fighting this for a long time. And I want to be free of it. And I don't know how to get free of it. And I've tried and it still seems to have its claws in me. If you want to know how to fight that bad boy, you call upon the Holy Spirit of the living God. Because the Spirit is set against the flesh. And in the flesh, you will not overcome the flesh. But the Spirit can. And I'm talking about walking. Walking in the Spirit. Remember what he said back in Galatians 3.3. Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? It doesn't work. You will never overcome sin by trying so hard. By working at it. By coming up with lists or plans or programs to fight a a particular sin. You're just going to keep fighting. You will continue to be in battle the rest of your life. But if you want to know grace and to live in grace, you've got to call on the Spirit. You've got to call on the One who is set against the flesh. And you know what's marvelous? The Spirit doesn't drive. The Holy Spirit of the living God leads. The Spirit doesn't rush. He doesn't push. He doesn't force. He always goes first. And He invites. I love Revelation twenty two seventeen. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Why is that? Because the Bride, being awash in the Holy Spirit of the living God, begins to act like the Spirit. The Spirit says, come, not get going. (laughs) Sometimes I think the bride says, get going. You know, sometimes we are like the wife with the honey-do list. Look, I I know you want a day off, but I got stuff for you to do. And the church will do that. I have a list for you here. Meanwhile, the Spirit's just saying, come, come after me. Come follow me. Isn't that what Jesus said? 
He never said to Matthew and John and James and Peter, he never said, hey, boys, get out ahead of me. I'll be right behind you. Follow me. And the Spirit says, come. And the bride says, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. And that's the Spirit. And the Spirit says, just come after me. Come, I'll lead. I'll go first. You just follow me. The flesh is really opposed to that whole idea. And Paul gets into now describing the flesh. Verse 19, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is not unlike other lists of Paul. In fact, he has listed out several condemning things in different letters, things that will keep you out of the kingdom. And by the way, when Paul says that, I think it's probably a good idea to check the list. In fact, we should check it twice. This keeps me out of the kingdom. He has a listing in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. Another listing in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. In Colossians chapter 3, um, he also has a list, or, or John writes a similar listing in Revelation, both chapter 21 and chapter 22. Things that, man, deeds of the flesh, that if you are doing these deeds of the flesh, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And the hyper-grace person says, oh yeah, you will. Don't worry about it. Grace. You can do whatever you want and don't worry about it. You're still going in. And they're wrong. But listen carefully. I, I want to define just a few of these. We could, I could define everyone. I'm not going to do that tonight. I want to leave a few for you to uh, go home and study yourselves. But here are the words. Immorality. Immorality, I've told you before, every time you see it in the New Testament, it's pornea. It's where we get the word pornography. And it means sexual immorality. But it's not limited to pornography, which would be sexual immorality. Remember, Jesus said anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery with her. So sexual immorality is the full gamut of all sexual action and behavior outside of one man and one woman in one marriage for one life. We had a, a, a seminar with our leadership that we're probably going to uh, bring to the whole church at some point. Had a gentleman come up and was talking to us about dealing with the issue of same-sex attraction in the church. What do you mean same-sex attraction? What I mean is how do you extend the forgiveness and grace and love of Jesus Christ to anyone and everyone regardless of what the sin issue may be in their lives. And there are those who have a sin issue of same-sex attraction, homosexuality. But what's interesting, and he pointed this out several times, he talked about having a hierarchy of sin. He gave this example. Suppose you go out to the mailbox, you have some neighbors next door, and your neighbors next door are a young couple, early 20s, young man, young girl, nice-looking, sweet couple, They just moved in. You you meet them at the mailbox and you talk to them and you start to get to know them and you find out they're living together. They're not married. But they're really nice and you think, well, I've got to get them to church. I've got to introduce them to Jesus. I've got to let them understand the truth of the gospel and and then maybe they can come to understand that the living circumstances are not biblical, but man, they need to meet Jesus first. And you're excited so you start to invite them to things. On the other side, you have another couple move in, two young men. You meet them out at the mailbox and you find out that they are living together in a homosexual relationship. If your attitude toward them is different than your attitude toward the others, you have a hierarchy of sin. You have now just said this sin is worse than this sin. You know what the Bible says? Immorality is immorality. It makes no difference. And we have to address it as such. It is not okay for us to sit here as a church and say, hey, this is fine, this is not. you got to call it what it is, and that's all I'm doing, and, and please understand that. Pornia is simply sexual immorality, and it is across the board. second word he uses is impurity. 
And that word, impurity, literally is means a lot, I think, to the Jewish mind. It's uncleanness. Akatharsia is the word. The next word he uses there is sensuality, which is aselgia. It's lust, but it's literally unbridled lust. So it's the horse that got out of the gate. I mean, it's lust out of control. That's what sensuality is talking about. The next one is interesting. It's in the Greek, idololatria. It's where we get our word idolatry. But it's an interesting word because it's not just the consideration of an idol. It's taking anything other than God and worshiping it. And the question then for us right now is, what's your idol? Honestly, what do you elevate above God? What do you worship more in terms of time, money, energy, effort? What is more important to you than God? That's idololatria in the Greek. He mentions sorcery. I've always found that to be a fascinating word because the Greek word for sorcery is pharmakia. Where we get pharmacy? Because sorcery had to do with a mixture of both witchcraft and and drug use and mixing of potions and things that would, would cause an altered state of consciousness. And it is in the scriptures that pharmakia, which is witchcraft and or drug use, Anything that's going to alter your thinking. And with marijuana in Washington right now, there are a lot of Christians who are going, well, now it's legal. Good. So I'm no longer sinning when I smoke pot. (laughs) Really? Pharmakia. I I, I do it medicinally and on Fridays, but other than that, not at all. (laughs) My friends... I would really encourage you to look into the damage it's doing to your brain, first of all. The studies are are coming out like crazy, and it's not good. It is not good. And it alters your state of understanding, and and it plays with your mind. And, And what does the Bible say? Again and again and again, be sober. Don't be drunk with wine and alcoholism. That's in the list too. We'll get there. Don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, pharmakia. That's an issue. You see that as a major issue, by the way, in the tribulation. Revelation 6 through 19. The use of drugs is going to be big. It already is. Sorcery, pharmakia. Then he talks about some relationally divisive things. He mentions here uh, enmities and strife. Enmity is literally hostility. Strife is contention. Jealousy. And that is... That word jealousy there, it's negative zeal. And that depends on the context. That word jealousy can be positive. It can be just zealous. In fact, that is zealous in the Greek. It can be used positively or negatively, but on a list like this, we're talking about negative jealousy. Those are all relationally divisive things. And remember we talked about God hates division, which is why these things are on the list. The next one he uses here, he says, outbursts of anger, which is the word thumos. And what that literally means is explosion. Explosive anger. Losing it. And those who practice such things, not going to make it. Wait a minute, not going to make it, Rick? I thought we were talking about grace. Hold on. (laughs) Outbursts of anger. He says then disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. I put those all together. Look those up on your own. But those are more relationally divisive issues. Things that divide people and, and break fellowship. And God is opposed. And these are things that will keep you out of the kingdom. You could almost say fellowship is necessary for heaven. If you can't be in fellowship with each other here, how do we expect to be in fellowship there? Because you will be. By the way, those of you who have the least positive opinion of me, God's going to put you and I in a room for several billion years of eternity. I know what's going to happen until we can get along. Relational divisiveness. And then he comes to the word, of course, drunkenness. Methe. Methe, which is literally translated intoxication. And really it can be anything that intoxicates. But it's that which takes me away from soberness 
and alters my thinking and my mentality and lowers my inhibitions and, and makes me susceptible to all matter of sin, intoxication. And finally, carousing, which is comos. Comos, news five. <laughs> um, no, it, that, that's the word, comos, and it means revel, revelry or rioting. We see that going on a lot, don't we, these days? There's a lot of last day's things in this list. But I think it's interesting. Finally, at the end of the list, Paul says, and and things like these. In other words, you can keep going if you want. I mean, we can add to the list. We could all day long just sit here and write out all the things that are what he describes as the deeds of the flesh. You can keep going. But the thought that should make the hyper-gracers shudder more than anything else is that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom, period. There's no getting around that, gang. If you practice these things, the deeds of the flesh, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I need you to understand the Bible tells us many will not. Not everybody will be saved. It's not because I want it that way. It's not even because God wants it that way. It's because ultimately the unsaved person wants it that way. The rebellion of the heart says no. And I've said before, God is not going to drag anybody kicking and screaming into heaven. You will not be forced. He leads. He invites. He says come. But He does not push. And so Jesus even said, addressing this, Matthew 7.21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Elsewhere in Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, I believe it is where Jesus says, and because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of most will grow cold. Now, how does this fit with grace, especially in this marvelous letter of grace? And I have thought in days past, man, I just kind of wish the whole deeds of the flesh thing wasn't included here. Because it would make grace a whole lot more palatable, but now he throws this in and we've got to deal with this. Now listen, please get this. Paul doesn't say those who do the deeds of the flesh will never enter. He doesn't say that those who struggle with sexual sin, those who blow it and blow up, you know, those who fall to weakness, who fail. He doesn't say anyone who commits any of this is barred from the kingdom, you are going to hell. That is not what he says. What does he say? Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the question is, are you practicing the things of the flesh? Or are you practicing the things of the Spirit? You do have say in this, in the life of grace. And know this, practice makes perfect. And the more you practice the flesh, the more the flesh will control your life. And by the way, you don't even have to sit down and say, I'm going to be a sinner. You want to know one of the best ways to practice the flesh, those of you who really want to be fleshly people? Try really hard to overcome the flesh. And you will find yourself practicing the flesh, engaging in a battle that you cannot win. Or you can practice the things of the Spirit. Inviting the Holy Spirit to come in and have His perfect effect on your heart and on your life. And here's the beautiful contrast, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, I'm going to need more time than we have tonight to take a closer look at these nine varieties of the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to take that up on Sunday morning. But I want to ask you to consider just this, this much tonight. 
Why does Paul say against such things there is no law? And it's very simple. Law has to do with deeds. These are fruit. And I am so thankful that Paul added his list of the deeds of the flesh because they are radically in contrast with the fruit of the Spirit. And it's not a one-for-one thing. It's not like, okay, well, there's sensuality here, but there's love here. I mean, you could try and do that, but there's more deeds of the flesh listed than there are fruit of the Spirit, so then you get kind of messed up. He's not comparing a fruit to a deed back and forth. The issue is not the lists as much as what he has just said. The issue is deeds or fruit. Deeds or fruit. Law has to do with deeds. Grace produces fruit. And we're going to talk about that more on Sunday. Why don't you chew on that and we'll come back to it. Verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Okay, so crucified, not circumcised. Remember, they're mutually exclusive. You cannot have law and love. You cannot have religion and grace. It's one or the other. Choose. Pick one. You can't cut out sin by marking the flesh. We have to die to sin. And there's really only one of two ways that you can die to sin. You can die your own death on your own cross under the wrath of God. You can choose to do that. But it will take all eternity to pay back what you owe. There's not enough eternity. When you sin against an eternal God, there is not enough eternity for you to make it right because you would first have to be perfect. So that option is really out. Or you can choose the finished work of Christ on His cross. John 19.30 when He said, To us die, it is finished. It is done. Grace is paid for. I died that you don't have to. How do I die to sin? I belong to Christ who died to sin. I am in Christ and Christ is in me. And because of this amazing grace relationship, the crucifixion that He died on the cross applies to me and now all of my sins have been killed off, paid for by His work. But what if the old flesh tries to creep back in, Rick? Verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. You were running so well. Now you need to walk. So, run well, walk led, led by the Spirit, step by step, prayer by prayer. And that's really the key here. So simple. It's always so simple when we come right down to it. Someone might say, don't I need 12 steps? Don't I need this program or or that procedure? Don't I need to do this, that, or the other? And in verse 16, he said, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. He's not just playing around with words. I mean, think about what he's saying. You want to live by the Spirit? Yes, that would be fantastic. How do I do it? Walk. How do I walk? To borrow off an old kid's Christmas program, you put one foot in front of the other. Thank you. Born in the 60s. <laughs> you put one foot in front of the You take one step at a time. Every step is a calling upon the Spirit of God. Can you do that? Walk in the Spirit. Every step is a prayer. Every step an invitation to have God be the one who's in control of the next step. Every step an invitation for the Lord by His power to give you a life of grace. Every step. We walk in the Spirit and therefore I live in the Spirit. You know, it's the whole goal setting thing, really. You can set the big goals. I want to be a black belt. Because you've got to get all the little goals to get to the black belt. Right? The big goal is I want to live in the Spirit. How do you do that? Walk. Just start walking. When you get up in the morning, start your prayer life. Holy Father, today, may I be sinless before You by Your grace and the power of Your Spirit. Today. And that temptation rises up in front of you. And it's not like, okay, I can do it this time. No. I have a step before me here, Father. I need Your Holy Spirit. It is really hard to sin when you're inviting the Spirit in. 
It really is. When I'm confronted with something, instead of shoving God aside, ignoring Him, rationalizing my position, if I just invite Him, turn on the light, darkness flees. Walk in the Spirit. In verse 26 he says, Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Because basically all our boasting is in the work of the Spirit. I can't even boast in myself. I just boast in the sweet varieties of His fruit, of what He's doing. So, for example, if you love, worship God. If you have joy, praise Jesus. If you know peace, thank the Lord. If you're going to boast in anything, boast in Him because His Spirit is the one pouring out His grace into a life of grace in which we run well if we walk led. And Father, we call on Your Spirit right now. We just ask that You would pour out grace upon grace, which, Lord, indicates to us that there's more grace than we will ever need. That every time I take a step and I use up some grace, there's more grace for the next step. But Holy Spirit, we are powerless even to walk in this grace by which we've been saved. So I would pray right now, Father, for our whole fellowship, for all of us here tonight specifically. Give us a step-by-step empowerment of Your Holy Spirit. Lord, I don't think it's asking too much to say, baptize me in the Spirit every step that I take. Immerse me in Your presence. Father, pour out on us Your power so that grace fully takes a hold. And we will, Lord, walk as a people graced by our God. We thank You for Jesus. We thank You for forgiveness. We praise You for Your amazing grace. And we ask that you now help us to live in it. In Jesus' name, amen.